Well, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Some of you may recall that originally for my doctor of ministry project, I was going to preach through the human songs of Luke 1 and 2, and I changed for a variety of reasons to do the series I'm actually finishing up tonight. And so I told you I would do a makeup preaching time, and this is it. So we're going to look at these human songs over the next four messages. I think probably, arguably, the most familiar Christmas hymn is Silent Night. It tells the story of the birth of Jesus Christ, paints the picture of the little family after the Savior is born, and we have that familiar line, Christ the Savior is born, Christ the Savior is born. And so there we are standing, as it were, looking at the manger with the baby, and for most of us, I think we've painted in our minds a, a context based hopefully mostly in Scripture and partly in tradition probably. But what if you had no context? What if you had no idea what this was about? What, what if you had no idea why this little guy being born meant anything? Now, what's the big deal about Jesus? What must I know beyond the manger? Well, this is where the Gospel of Luke paints this beautiful picture for us. And if we were to make a comparison... The Gospel of Matthew is a gospel written clearly to a Jewish mind. It's filled with Old Testament quotations and references. It's saturated with thoughts of the Messiah as given in the Old Testament. But what about us Gentiles? What about those of us who didn't grow up hearing the stories of the Old Testament read and told and discussed by the village men after the synagogue meetings? Well, this is where Luke comes to our aid and helps us. God raised up Luke, he was a Gentile, by the way, to be the voice of understanding to the Gentiles. And one of the ways that Luke helps us Gentiles to understand Christ is by recording a number of songs or poems concerning the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2. These are sometimes referred to as the birth songs, or as Alistair Begg calls them, our Christmas playlist. I think that's a nice way to put it. So three of these four songs will be our focus for the next four messages, and we'll culminate that on Christmas Eve um, at 6 o'clock at our evening service. But I need to work our way to these songs to help us understand why they're so, so significant to us as Gentiles. If you're here as an ethnic Jew, we praise the Lord for you, and that's wonderful, and it'll help you as well. But most of the time, that's not the case in Bakersfield, California. Well, let's work our way towards it. In the years following the resurrection of Christ and his ascension into heaven, there was a man, a very high-powered man, and he had a question. His question was essentially this. Can one such as I be saved? Can the gospel message, as it was taught to me, be true? Is it really true? This man's name was Theophilus. And we meet him first here in the Gospel of Luke. In fact, Luke wrote his gospel account to begin to answer that question for Theophilus. And so here we have his introduction in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." Well, Luke was a physician. He was the ministry companion of the Apostle Paul. In both Luke and Acts, which he authored both, Luke is immensely detailed. 
And I think it's safe to say that Luke must have really cared for and must have really loved Theophilus because he takes the time and the monumental effort to compile and to write between Luke and Acts what would eventually become one-fourth of our New Testament if you're counting the words. And so Theophilus was given this wonderful letter so that he could be assured that his salvation was real and that what he understood about Christianity so far was true. You notice that Theophilus is addressed as most excellent Theophilus. His name means loved by God or dear to God, but Theophilus was a fairly common name in the Roman Empire. He was very likely, because of this title, most excellent, a Roman provincial governor. How do we know this? That's the exact title given to the other Roman provincial governors in the book of Acts. He was the chief tax agent. He would be a chief judge, commander of the Roman, uh, the provincial military forces. He was the guy. It was a very much a king-like position. He would have been a man of means because that office was not given to you. It was purchased. And so he would have been a man with money. It's very likely that Theophilus heard the gospel from the Apostle Paul. But Theophilus had a problem. His problem was he wasn't a Jew. And think about this. Jesus was a Jew. He came to preach the message of the kingdom to the Jews. His entire ministry was in the land of the Jews. Jesus was crucified by a Roman official, nailed to a Roman cross by Roman soldiers. So not only is Theophilus not a Jew, but he's a Roman official and a Roman soldier. And so he's in the worst possible position to make a claim to Christ. And so Luke writes to him to answer the basic question, how Jewish do I have to be to really be a Christian? And can God save me as I am? Can he save me as a Roman? The short answer is found in Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, regardless of who they are. And so what we see in the Gospel of Luke is a very Gentile-angled look at the birth and the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Christ. Now, how do we know this is a Gentile-flavored book? Well, let me give you some reasons. This is a, a, a book written for us here in Bakersfield, California. First reason, genealogy. Genealogy. Matthew's genealogy of Jesus begins with Abraham. This would make sense to a Jew, the progenitor of the Jews. But Luke's genealogy is much more universal. In Luke chapter 3, he goes all the way back to Adam. He emphasizes the whole of the human race. Second reason this is a very Gentile book, we would say ministry. Ministry, the whole world is seen as the sphere of God's redemptive work in, in, in Luke. If we compare it to Matthew's gospel, the emphasis is very local. It's very much on Israel. Matthew 2 verse 6 says that from Bethlehem will, quote, come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. But in Luke... The angels in Luke 2, verse 14, they shout glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. So it's very, very universal in scope in ministry. The third reason we might list as prophecy. Prophecy. In contrast to Luke, Matthew's gospel is absolutely saturated with fulfillment of messianic prophecy from the Old Testament. Luke's gospel is very light in that area. Why? Because probably most of his original readers hadn't even read the Old Testament. There's only five direct references in the entire Gospel of Luke to fulfill prophecy. Now, he has many, many references to the Old Testament, but relatively speaking, very few actual direct quotes. And all of the quotes that there are are quoted from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Why? Because a Gentile could understand that. 
Another reason we might list is geography. Geography. Unlike Matthew and John, written primarily to a, a Jewish audience, Luke gives footnotes about Jewish geography. Things that we wonder, why are they in here? Well, they're in there because the readers, the original readers, didn't know these places necessarily. Luke 4.31, he explains that Capernaum is a city in Galilee. Luke 8.26, he talks of the country of the Gerasenes, and he explains this is opposite Galilee. He explains to the reader about the Mount of Olives, about the town of Arimathea, and Emmaus being seven miles from Jerusalem. So he gives these geographical references that if you didn't grow up around there, you wouldn't be familiar with them. It's another reason this is a very Gentile book, chronology. Chronology. What time did Luke use? Well, he referred to the Roman emperors to designate the dates of Jesus' birth in chapter 2 and the ministry of John the Baptist in, in chapter 3. He gives dates that would be familiar to a broader Gentile audience. We might give another reason is terminology. Terminology. Luke uses a number of words which would be much more familiar to Greek-speaking Gentile readers. Uh, for example, Matthew's gospel tends to use the word rabbi when speaking of a teacher, whereas Luke uses the Greek word didaskalos, which means teacher. That would be much more familiar to a Greek-speaking, Greek-reading audience. So in terms of genealogy and ministry and prophecy, geography, chronology, terminology, Luke is very Gentile in flavor and in purpose. So it should make us excited about this book. Now, Luke the physician was a well-educated, well-read man. He was one who cared for people. Remember, being a physician in in Luke's day, this wasn't a means to financial prosperity. This was because you had a compassionate heart and you had a scientific mind. That was generally the two qualifications of a physician. And so it's reasonable to assume that Luke was a man of both compassion and detail. We see both of those in this gospel. He's compassionate. He's concerned about sinners He uses the word sinner 16 times. And you would say, well, maybe that's not a lot. Well, Matthew's gospel uses it five times, Mark five times, and John four times. Luke goes four times that. He's very concerned for sinners. He also mentions the lowest of society more than any other gospel writer does. He mentions the Gentiles and the children and the women. There's a great focus on the least of the society. So he's compassionate. We also see his detail. He's detailed in dates, geography. He gives us more details about Christ's birth than any other gospel. We would expect a doctor to give details about the birth. That makes sense to us. There are six miracles and 19 parables of Jesus that are found only in Luke. Incredible detail. Amazing gospel. But beyond that, tradition tells us that Luke was also a painter. He was an artist. And he painted pictures for the early church. And he, by according to tradition, tradition gave these pictures as gifts to various local church bodies. Now, apparently, he was a better writer than painter because none of his paintings survived, but his writings are still here with us. But the, the pictures he painted with words, they come to us as the inspired word of God And these painted word pictures include four beautiful songs, four beautiful poems that are embedded into his work by the Holy Spirit. We have the song of Mary when she visited her relative Elizabeth. This is often called the Magnificat, the the Latin term for it. The song of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, as the the birth, at the birth of John the Baptist. This is often called the Benedictus. The proclamation of the angels at the birth of Jesus. Jesus. We know that we're familiar with this one, the Gloria in Excelsis. 
And then we have Simeon's prayerful song at the dedication of the baby Jesus in the temple, often called the Nunc Dimittis. And so we have these, these songs here. Three of them are human songs, and one is angelic as a proclamation. But I want to focus on the human songs because there's a unique feature that's common to all three of them, the songs that we'll examine together, the songs of Mary, Zechariah, and Simeon. What's so unique about them? Well, the fact is, is they consist almost entirely of either Old Testament quotes or Old Testament illustrations. In other words, there's nothing original about them, that they're pulling from Old Testament material and pieced together using previously inspired material condensed into three beautiful and instructive songs. So if we ask the question, what is a Gentile like me supposed to do? How am I supposed to understand the context and the importance of the birth of Christ? Well, the answer is, listen to these songs, because this is why they're there. These songs serve as a teacher, a shortcut guide to what you need to know beyond the manger. As a matter of fact, we're going to look at nine different themes, all Old Testament themes found in all three of these songs. And they're there as teachers for us. They're themes that are necessary to grasp the the context of the birth of Christ. They're themes that are necessary to help the Gentile, like us, understand that the birth of Christ isn't some isolated event, but it's a crescendo toward the, the beginning of the end of the redemptive plan of God that has been set in place from eternity past. These songs help us understand that. Listen, these songs don't just tell you what you need to know beyond the manger. They tell you what you need to know to be part of God's future kingdom. We'll do the future kingdom part on Christmas Eve. I'll make you wait for that part. But for us to understand what we need to know beyond the manger, we're going to consider all three of these songs at the same time. And we're going to do them by theme, exploring nine important themes in all three songs. But I think it'd be useful to us to introduce them first as they're presented and just to take them as they come as individual songs before we kind of look at them as a unit because they do come very close to one another in the text and that means something. So you know the story that Mary betrothed to Joseph has been visited by the angel Gabriel and told that God will conceive in her the son of the most high God and that this son will occupy an everlasting kingly throne. And so she goes to visit her older relative Elizabeth. Both are pregnant, Elizabeth with John the Baptist and Mary with Jesus. And when Elizabeth first heard the sound of Mary's voice, her baby leapt within her womb. He jumped for joy at the presence of the unborn Jesus Christ. And Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, says this in Luke chapter 1, verse 42. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. There are five times in Scripture that somebody is said to leap for joy, and every time it is a leap toward God. Every time. So here she is, Elizabeth, so excited, so happy, to be with the mother of the Lord and now filled with the Holy Spirit herself to give this beautiful exclamatory song in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant for behold from now on all generations will call me blessed. 
For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So now we fast forward a few months. The time for Elizabeth to give birth has come. But we have to remember nine months prior to Elizabeth giving birth to John the Baptist, the good news of the conception of John had come not to Elizabeth, but to Zechariah, her husband, Zechariah the priest. And he didn't take the news so well at first. An angel, Gabriel the messenger, he had appeared to the priest and told him that his wife would bear a son. And here was his response in chapter 1, verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom and the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And here was his response of faith. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Totally off the subject, men, never say my wife is advanced in years. Those words should never come out of your mouth, even if it is to an angel. When Mary... The teenager, the 13, 14, 15-year-old girl, when she received her news from Gabriel, she said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. But when Zechariah, the older priest of God, received his news, he said, Not happening. I'm old and so is my wife. That was his response. And so Gabriel chastised him. Verse 19, And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And so for nine months or so, Zechariah is literally speechless. But the birth of little John has come and Zechariah has had nine months to think about this and his tongue is miraculously loosed. And now we see in verse 67, of chapter 1. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, speaking of John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. 
because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. And now Luke focuses the reader on the impending birth of Christ. He records the birth narrative of Luke 2, 1 through 21. And when Jesus was 40 days old, having been circumcised a week after his birth and then waited the prescribed 33 days for ritual purification, he was to be presented at the temple to be dedicated to the Lord as the first son who opened the womb of Mary according to the law of God. And so here they are, the parents and little baby Jesus, 40 days old. And at the temple was an old, old man, Simeon, a faithful Jew who was spending his final days doing one thing, and that was waiting for Messiah. Why was he doing this? Luke chapter 2, verse 26 And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. That is amazing that he was given that gift. This wasn't given to the leaders of Israel. This wasn't given to the scribes, to the Pharisees, to the rabbis. This was given to an old man that nobody knew. And on this glorious day, the Spirit of God led him into the temple And his eyes searched the crowds and there he was. He saw the little baby in the arms of his mother, the newborn Jesus. And we get our third birth song by a human being. Verse 28. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So here we have in rapid succession these three songs, one by the mother of Jesus, one by the father of John the Baptist, and one by a faithful Jew who waited and waited and waited for Messiah. And in these three songs, we see really an Old Testament lesson with repeated themes, themes that explain to us Gentiles that the baby Jesus is far more than just a wonderful Christmas story. He is the consummation. He is the finale. He's the zenith. He is the focal point of the redemptive plan of God. So we'll identify nine themes that are present in these songs that serve to tell the Gentiles, to tell Theophilus, to tell us Yes, this Jesus in whom you have believed is in fact the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the coming King. All that you've been taught is true. And so we'll look at one or two today. We'll see if we can get to to both of them. The first theme we want to look at, and appropriately so, is the glory of God. The glory of God. Go back with me to Luke chapter 1, verse 46, the beginning of the Magnificat. And Mary said... My soul magnifies the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. Mary's very first response to God's graciousness in bringing the Savior to the world, she magnifies the Lord. Magnify, if we did kind of a wooden translation of that Greek word, it means to make something large. But really, in the context, it means to declare something as great, to exalt something as being absolutely, utterly magnificent. Of course, this is where we get the traditional Latin title for the song. When Mary says this, the Latin Vulgate says, Magnificat anima mia dominum. My soul magnifies the Lord. 
Man, what a strong opening. She didn't open with, dear Lord, please help me with this pregnancy. She opens with, my soul magnifies the Lord, immediately acknowledging that God is worthy of glory. Now, Mary is 13, 14, 15 years old. Where might she get the idea to open a spirit-inspired song of praise with the glory of the Lord? Almost certainly from the prayer of another woman. A prayer which has an incredibly uh, striking set of similarities to Mary's song. This is the prayer of Hannah as recorded in 1 Samuel 2. You don't have to turn there. I'll just walk you through it. You recall that Hannah had been begging God for what? For a son. She had promised the Lord that if only he would give her a son, she would turn around and dedicate him to the Lord's service for his whole life. And when her miracle son was born and weaned about three years later, she stayed true to her promise and she presented her son to the priest. She presented little Samuel. And why was Samuel important? He is the boy who would be the bridge in Israel between the time of the judges and the time of the kings. He is the son who would be a king-like prophet of God. And when she presented this boy, she praised the Lord and she opened with the glory of God. 1 Samuel 2, beginning in verse 1, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn, meaning strength, is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. And then she goes on for the next eight verses to extol the, the greatness of God. In verse 4, he's a great warrior. Verse 5, he's a great provider. Verse 6, he is the great killer of the wicked. Verse 6, he is the great life giver. Verses 6, 7, and 8, he is the one who exalts some and humbles most. And she closes her prayer by extolling the glory of God as the judge of all the ends of the earth. And then, and then this is so important, she gives the end game. She gives the, the prophetic reason, the culmination of God's greatness, the culmination, the reason for his glory and God's judgment of the wicked. She ends her prayer by saying, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn, the strength of his anointed. Why is that important? Because when Hannah prayed that prayer, Israel had never had a king. But Hannah had, been, had given birth to Samuel who would eventually anoint King David who would be the promised covenant ancestor of the coming future king, the king spoken of by God in Psalm 2 as the anointed one who would be given the whole earth as his possession, Jesus Christ. So when Mary borrows from the prayer of Hannah, this one phrase, my soul magnifies the Lord, it's dripping with prophetic significance concerning the chief end of all things. What is that? That is the glory and the honor and the magnification of God. And to the glorious God, Mary offers immediate worship in verse 47. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Rejoices, it's a word that means to be glad. It has the idea of seeing God as the source of everything delightful to me, the source of contentment. Where might she get that idea? Well, nearly this exact phrase that she uses here, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, or, or the God of my salvation, is given by the prophet Habakkuk in response to the saving grace of God, this offering of glory to God. You recall that Habakkuk lived in the late 7th century BC and he was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. And Habakkuk brought a complaint to the Lord. 
His complaint was that wickedness and injustice are running rampant in Judah and in Jerusalem. And he asked the Lord, how long are you going to watch violence and evil? He says in Habakkuk 1 verse 3, I mean, he's pretty daring here. He says, why do you look idly at wrong? So God answers Habakkuk and tells him that he's fully aware of what's happening and he has a solution. But the solution is not a prophetic rebuke. It's not a little famine here and there to get Judah's attention. God gives the solution. He says he will raise up the Chaldeans, this fierce and mighty people, people who would take over Babylon, and they're coming. And they're coming in Habakkuk's lifetime. They're called violent. They're called fierce. And they're not just coming to teach Judah a lesson. They're coming to irreparably conquer this nation to cut down their trees, to burn down their fields, to murder countless thousands and kidnap the rest, to kill or steal all the livestock and to essentially make the land an unlivable wasteland. When Habakkuk heard that answer from the Lord, I'm sure part of him was saying, man, I wish I hadn't said anything. And in chapter three, he recalls his response. He says that his body trembled, his lips quivered and his legs were so weak he could barely stand. But God had given the promise. A promise that the Apostle Paul, by the way, picks up in the New Testament. Habakkuk 2 verse 4, God gave the promise, but the righteous shall live by his, what? Faith. In the context of Habakkuk, the righteous shall survive by his faith. In other words, that God would spare the individual faithful. They might be carried off like Daniel was, but they would be spared. The nation would fall, but God would spare the true believers. And in chapter 2, God promises later to wipe out the Babylonians. God is sovereign. He can say, I'm raising up the Babylonians to come against you. And when they do, how dare you Babylonians come against my people? Because he's sovereign and he gets to do that. And so Habakkuk knows that trouble is, is coming to Judah. But later on, more trouble is coming to Babylon. And in the midst of this, God will save his faithful remnant. And so he gives glory to God. In Habakkuk chapter 3, he prays, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord. Do I fear? He acknowledges the glory of God. And so how does, how does Habakkuk respond to the fact that God is a glorious, saving God who does not forget his people? How does he respond? He says at the end of the book, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. In other words, after, after the conquest, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. How does Mary respond to the fact that God is a glorious saving God who does not forget his people? My spirit rejoices in God, my savior or the God of my salvation. This is not original with her. This is from Habakkuk. But along with Mary, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, he begins his song by extolling the glory of God, the first theme we're looking at. Look at chapter 1, verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now we say blessed. It's traditionally we pronounce it blessed when it's used in English as an adjective, as a descriptive word. It means to declare something as worthy of, of commendation and praise, worthy of being spoken well of. 
In fact, this Greek word is related to our English word for eulogy, which is to give a, a blessing to someone as having lived a life that's worthy of mention. This phrase that Zechariah uses to give glory to God, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, has a very specific connotation. It's not just something he pulled out of midair. This exact phrase is absolutely weighted with meaning because it's, it's associated very specifically with the installation of a king chosen by God for his glory. At the very end of his life, King David at the end of his life, the passing on of the throne of Israel was still in question. There wasn't a lot of certainty as to what was going to happen. One of his sons, Adonijah, he tried to seize power with cunning and trickery, but his plot was thwarted, and Solomon was established as the new king. And David bowed to the Lord on his bed, and he said in his old age, as recorded in 1 Kings one forty-eight, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day. Shortly after this, David apparently managed to summon the strength to get out of bed and he addressed the leaders of all the clans of Israel and he acknowledged that Solomon, not him, but Solomon had been given the task of building the temple of God. David listed all the wealth that he had, he had personally provided for the task and he challenged the people to get behind Solomon in this project. And, and the people gave an almost immeasurable amount of wealth to fund this new temple. It was the shortest building campaign in history. It lasted apparently one day. First Chronicles 29, beginning in verse 10, he recounts David's prayer of thanksgiving. His prayer of thanksgiving and how the beginning of Solomon's reign was so very blessed. But I want you to notice how he opens the prayer and how he closes the prayer. Like Zechariah, he begins in First Chronicles 29, beginning in verse 10, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might and in your hand it is to make great and give strength to all. And here's the end of his prayer. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. What is this prayer about? There's a direct connection to the glory of God revealed in the giving of a king chosen by God. In Simeon's song, Luke writes the inspired description of what this prayer is. Look with me at Luke chapter 2. Verse 28, this is Luke's description of the whole song. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, blessed, this is the verb form of the same Greek word we looked at a moment ago. It means to ascribe to the Lord worth and honor and glory. As a matter of fact, though, this isn't just the fact that Simeon blessed song. This is the characterization of the whole song, that the whole song is ascribing glory to God. It's as if Simeon is saying, you are glorious for letting your servant depart in peace. You are glorious for letting me see your salvation. You are glorious that you have prepared your salvation in the presence of all peoples. You are glorious for giving us the light of revelation. And what is God's gift? The end of verse 32, to give his what? Glory to your people Israel. What is this ultimate demonstration, this ultimate expression of the glory of God as the writer of Hebrews says, it is the one who is the radiance of the glory of God. 
That's the ultimate expression. So what does the Gentile learn about God's redemptive plan from these songs? We learn that the glory of God is the reason for all of redemptive history, that his glory is most beautifully, most ultimately manifested in the installation of a king who is himself the radiance of the glory of God. Oh, so the birth of Jesus is a little bit more than a touching Christmas story. Yep, it's a little bit more than a touching Christmas story. It is the revelation of the glory of God as foreshadowed and promised in the Old Testament. And of course, the one non-human song and poem of Luke 1 and 2 agrees wholeheartedly with this, that in response to the birth of Jesus, they shout out, the angels do, glory to God in the highest. That is the purpose of him coming. The theme of the glory of God is so apparent in these songs and it's directly connected to the manifestation of the glory of God in Christ. To not pursue Christ, to not love Christ, is to reject and to shun and to mock the very glory of God. And on the flip side, to pursue Christ and to repent to Christ, to acknowledge your need of a Savior, is to recognize that God is all about his own glory. You might not like that, but that is simply a fact of the universe. God is all about his own glory. That is the chief end of everything. The only way to partake in and to agree with and to participate in the glory of God is to partake in and agree with and participate in Christ. There is no other option. So these three songs instruct the Gentile from the Old Testament about the theme of the glory of God as related to the revelation of Christ. What else do we need to know beyond the manger? There's a second theme that the Gentile needs to understand, the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant. This is an This is an Old Testament lesson for us here, God's covenant with Abraham. So we go back to Mary's song, and Mary just drops this in at the very end of her song. It's like the conclusion. If we were setting this to music, this would be about four notes from the very end. Verse 54, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. He, she specifically names Abraham the spiritual and physical father of Israel. And Mary particularly refers to the fact that God spoke to Abraham and that some type of mercy was promised. Now, the Abrahamic covenant is one of the major keys really to understanding the whole of Scripture. It's basically the key to the entire Old Testament and it finds its fulfillment in the New Testament. It's an unconditional covenant that has ramifications that are happening right now at this moment and ramifications that will extend on into the future. The unfolding of the Abrahamic covenant is basically synonymous with the unfolding of redemptive history as a whole. And I would even say this, your view of the Abrahamic covenant will in large part test the hermeneutics, the Bible study method you use to interpret Scripture, and it's also a litmus test for determining your theological perspective on Scripture. It's a big, big deal. And so when Mary drops this little bomb, it is, like her, pregnant with significance. It's very significant. God's covenant with Abraham basically entails three major elements. The making of Abraham into a great nation, the personal blessing of Abraham, And then the blessing of all the nations through Abraham, the making of Abraham into a great nation, personal blessing, and the blessing of all the nations. Now, it's interesting that the the term, actual term covenant is only used of this covenant twice in Genesis 15 and 17, but the details are repeated over and over again. We have the Abrahamic covenant 
and various aspects of it outlined in Genesis 12, Genesis 13, 15, 17, 18, 21, and 22. And so it's everywhere. And the rest of the Torah, the rest of the Pentateuch, repeatedly refers to the Abrahamic covenant because it's the linchpin. It's the key on which everything else hinges. It's a covenant that's filled with promises. A covenant is not the same thing as a promise. God's covenant is his everlasting oath and faithfulness to fulfill the promises that are part of the covenant, the things that he's promised to do. So the whole thing really kicks off in Genesis 12, beginning of verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, you don't have to turn there, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who curse you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram is commanded by God to leave his homeland to go to a new land, a land that's promised to him the land known in his day as the land of Canaan. God makes promises, the, the promise of a coming great nation, the personal blessing of Abraham, the blessing of all nations through Abram. In Genesis 15, God revisits these promises to Abraham with a, a very definite emphasis on land, the land that God would give Abraham's descendants. In verses 18 through 21, he gives the specific boundaries of the land. And very simply, it is all the way from the Nile River to the Euphrates River. A lot more than modern day Israel possesses. In Genesis 17, in another reiteration of this covenant, the Lord gives five speeches to Abraham about the covenant. Two of them are about God's requirements on Abraham, but three of them focus on God's commitment to Abraham. The first of these three, in verses three through eight, this is when God changes Abram's name to Abraham and promises that he'll be the father of a multitude of nations, that kings will come from Abraham. And several times God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you for an everlasting covenant. In the second of these three speeches, God changes Sarai's name to Sarah, Abraham's wife, and promises to give them a son through her. Kings and peoples will come through her. And then in the third of these three speeches, God promises the future son Isaac to be the bearer of the covenant and graciously, kindly promises that Abraham's other son Ishmael through Hagar the servant that he'll be blessed as well. Now, how will Abraham and Sarah be the progenitors of many nations? We'll look at that in two weeks. Then in Genesis 22, God has tested Abraham by, by asking him to sacrifice young Isaac Abraham passed the test and God provided a substitute sacrifice. And so here God reaffirms his promise to Abraham specifically around the idea of offspring, literally seed in Hebrew. This is where it gets really interesting. Genesis 22, beginning in verse 17, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring, your seed, as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now what we have here are three uses of the Hebrew term for seed. The first one is a singular form, one seed. But in the context of multiplying the seed like the stars of heaven, it speaks of one people, one group of people. But the next two references, the same exact word form, singular, they're a little bit more cloudy. They're a little bit more murky. They could refer to many descendants or they could refer to a single descendant. 
there's several reasons that we would take those last two uses to refer to one man, one single descendant of Abraham. First of all, one of the aims of Genesis is a royal aim. It's, it's pointing us toward a royal lineage, toward a king, because we have this chosen royal line. We have Adam and Seth and Noah and Shem and Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, Judah and David. This is a trajectory. It's pointing to one person. The second reason that this is referring to one man, the, the personal pronoun translated his, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. It takes a specific form that is his enemies, not their enemies. If your Bible has a footnote in the margin or their enemies, that is not correct. It's a third person singular pronoun. It means his, one. But you don't have to believe either of those because I cheated and we have a divine commentary on this. The third reason, the Apostle Paul gives commentary in Galatians 3 verse 16 now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. I love divinely inspired commentary. And how will all the families of the earth be blessed through Abraham as promised in Genesis 12 verse three? How is the Abrahamic covenant being worked out right now? Because it's not finished yet. Every single non-Jew who has come to faith in Jesus Christ is a recipient of the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. You are here today loving and worshiping the singular seed of Abraham. So when Mary drops in this quick, as he spoke to our fathers Abraham and to his offspring forever, this is a cue to the Gentile reader to find out what's the big deal about Abraham. It is a big deal. The big deal to the Gentile reader is that we belong to Christ because God is faithful to Abraham. This gets even better though. Zechariah and Simeon didn't leave this out of their songs. Look at chapter one, verse 72. Zechariah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in the coming of christ god is showing the mercy and god is remembering a 2000 year old promise and i want you to picture this because we can relate to this very well if the time of christ seems like forever ago to you 2000 years ago well remember that the same amount of time had passed since abraham had received his promise all the way to zechariah's day So for us, this is 4,000 years ago. And Zechariah calls this a holy covenant, a sacred covenant, a set-apart covenant. It's divine in quality. Now, God did have certain requirements of Abraham, but we're not here because of Abraham's faithfulness. We're here because of God's faithfulness. And you recall that in Genesis 15, when God ratified his covenant with Abraham with the solemn ceremony in which both parties of the covenant were to express their promises, God put Abraham to sleep for the ceremony and God ratified the covenant. The ceremony consisted of taking certain animals and cutting them in half. And by the way, this is where we get the, the normal Hebrew usage of we cut a covenant. That's what they would say. Both parties then were to passed through these sliced up bodies of these sacrifices and they were swearing that may this happen to me if I break my covenant. 
And so you pass through this saying, may I be like these animals if I break my covenant. Both parties were to pass through them. But Abraham never passed through them because God put them to sleep. God, representing himself by a smoking oven and a flaming torch, he passed through the animals and he made verbal promises and he made a covenant to Abraham even as Abraham slept. And you can't get a more certain promise because God cannot lie so his word is true and God cannot die. So there's no possibility that he's going to break this covenant. It was a holy covenant. It was very one-sided and very unconditional. Simeon's reference to the Abrahamic covenant is a little more veiled, a little more implied, but it is there nevertheless. Luke chapter 2, verse 30. He says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, verse 31, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. This is an old faithful Jew waiting in a Jewish Jerusalem, in a Jewish temple, for a Jewish Messiah born to Jewish parents. And yet he's just exclaimed that God has prepared salvation, past tense action, it's done, in the presence of all peoples. Now God could have made this promise to Abraham. He could have said, I'm going to make you a great nation and all the other nations on earth will rot in hell for all eternity. But he didn't make that promise. In Abraham, all of the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now listen, this phrase used by Simeon is poignant. It's emotional. It's important that, that God prepared salvation in the presence of all peoples. You weren't personally there when God made this promise to Abraham so long ago in Mesopotamia. As Stephen says in Acts 7, verse 2, the glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. You weren't there, but your representative was. Your representative was the sovereign God over all things, the electing God who chose and elected Abraham also from the foundation of the world chose you for salvation. And as assurance that 4,000 years later, when you're on the earth in that blink of an eye that we call our entire lifetime, that God would bring you the faith in Christ. Why do you have that assurance? Because God promised Abraham on your behalf because you couldn't be there. He promised salvation in the presence of all peoples. Well, what must you know beyond the manger? coming of Christ is not an isolated event. It was the fulfillment of a promise made 2,000 years earlier to an old man, too old to have children, that from his line, from his family, from a seed, the seed would come and this seed would be a man and through that man, salvation would be offered to the whole world. You are here because, O Gentile, of the Abrahamic covenant. And Mary and Zechariah, and Simeon are our teachers to remind us of that glorious fact. Let's thank the Lord for this time. Our fathers, we come to you now remembering the culmination of all of redemptive history is Christ, and as we now begin to prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's table, to receive the Lord's supper, our affections and our thoughts turn toward Christ. How fortunate and how blessed we are that by your mercy and by your grace you chose to reveal him to us. You chose to reveal to our hearts our own sinfulness, our own ingratitude, our own desperate wickedness.
and to show us instead our need for Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.